Right. <clears throat> the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 to 14 and this is part 10 in, the, in our series on the book of, of Daniel. So in our series we find ourselves in the second part of the book of Daniel which has uh, 12 chapters. And so with the the first six were mostly narrative telling a story of Daniel and his friends as they are exiled from, from Jerusalem all the way to the capital of the empire, which was Babylon. Uh, it is somewhere around about the 600 years BC, so some 2600 years before today. And the second part of the book deals with the prophetic visions that Daniel received. Prophecies, uh, some of the prophecies that we read here were fulfilled close to the present time, close to, close to the time of Daniel, others within centuries of his life, while others have yet to be fulfilled. And as you know, in the Bible there's a, definitely a lot of prophecy. Much of it is, is similar to standing on a mountaintop or on a lookout and as you, as you look into the horizon, you see some peaks are, are closer nearby, some mountains are close by, others are mid-range, and yet others are far into the horizon. That's, that just gives you an indication, a picture of how prophecy in the Bible works. And they tell us that all of history is God's story because God is sovereign. What are the, we, we know the story, for example, of the, the, between Daniel and King Belshazzar when he received the writing on the wall. That's where the saying comes from, the writing on the wall. And uh, Daniel told him, you're going to be dead tonight. And he was. And that's when the, the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire. And so it's a historical event. It's verifiable in history. Uh, it's exactly, it happened just as Daniel, well, God said through Daniel. That's why we say that God is sovereign. And these prophetic writings can be described more than just prophetic, they are apocalyptic because they deal with the end times and they tell us that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better eventually. Where God is going to bring history to its dramatic conclusion. So in this respect, if you want to get a, a handle, for example, on the book of Revelation, you have to try and understand what is happening in Daniel. So because the language and the symbolism follows through in Revelation. So here the year is 553 BC. In the early days, we go back to the early days of the last Babylonian king who was King Belshazzar. And Daniel recounts three separate visions in this one chapter, chapter 7. Last week we looked at the first two and we touched on the glorious vision of the Ancient of Days. Now we will address the third vision which presents us with an equally glorious vision of the Son of Man. And it's good for us to do this now because it's a lead up to Easter. It's actually a good preparation for us what we celebrate in Easter. 
Now last week we mentioned the parallels between the vision here and the vision in chapter 2. There in chapter 2 it was the dream received decades earlier by the big king. The, The biggest Babylonian king was Nebuchadnezzar and that was interpreted by Daniel. That dream was about the about a big image which was about the four empires shown as four parts, four components within that large image. And who were these components, the four parts? Well, they were the Babylonian Empire, the most immediate one, the Medo-Persian Empire that followed, then the Greeks, who the Greek Empire under Alexander, who would eventually be split into four parts. And then, of course, the greatest of these was the Roman Empire. The, the accuracy is remarkable because when Daniel received his vision, only the Babylonian Empire existed. None of the other ones existed. The rest were still unknown. So this just reinforces the the truthfulness of the Bible. Now Daniel receives a parallel vision to what he had in chapter 2, where the same four great empires are not represented by one image into four parts, but they are rather represented by four animals or four beasts with each one devouring the previous one and establishing its power. So the the most powerful one of them all is actually indescribable. We don't actually know what type of animal it was because it became so fearsome. It was, of course, the Roman Empire. Now, you might also recall that in chapter 2, there was a mysterious stone that was not shaped by human hands but appeared and destroyed the great image and and it reduced it to absolutely nothing. This stone then started small but then grew larger and larger and went on to become a great mountain which filled the whole earth. What we are discussing here this morning is, corresponds to that stone in Daniel chapter 2. Instead of a stone... One like the Son of Man receives dominion and glory from God the Father, who is the Ancient of Days. This Son of Man is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Unlike all the other kingdoms that have come and have gone, His kingdom will have no end. Therefore, the entire vision of Daniel chapter 7 can be summarised like this. It can be summarised as kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the kingdom of Christ will endure eternally forever. This is what we read. Let's read those verses again. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
Now we need to define this expression, the son of man. At the basic level, there's nothing special about it, this expression, the son of man. It occurs frequently in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament. It is actually another way of saying human being. For example, a well-known verse uh, in, the, in the Old Testament reads, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Numbers 23.19. In other words, God is not human. Jesus, the interesting thing is that Jesus used this title of himself more than any other. He used it no less than 78 times in the Gospels. Why did he do that? Well, firstly, he did so because the title is true. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. Secondly, he used it because on the face of it, it is just an ordinary phrase. At one level, like all of us, he was born of a woman. And, and, and no one should get offended by that fact, because that is how biology works. We've all had mothers, right? But on a deeper level, those with ears to hear would make, and they knew their Old Testament, they know their Messianic Verses they know all about it because that so they would make the connection to Daniel chapter seven very quickly, and he meant it that way as well. So there is this this double purpose in the expression, and Jesus was very subtle in in, in that. He was always opening his identity, revealing his identity to, to those with eyes to see. But he had to be careful because he didn't want everybody coming to trying, trying to make him king. If you remember when after the feeding of the 5,000, one of the first things they did after he fed them, they didn't go home, they actually followed him because they wanted to make him Messiah, they wanted to make him king. Only when the time was right was he going to reveal himself. And so right before, right before he was crucified, he went before the, the, the high priest and in Matthew chapter 26, this is what we read. This is the, the priest interviewing Jesus at his trial and he said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man, there it is, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds, on the clouds of heaven. So he openly confess his deity at the point where he was going to be crucified for it. So how did Jesus interpret this title and, and how did he use it? What, what meaning did he give to it, this title of the Son of Man? 
So let us look at some of these important teachings that are attached to it. First of all, let's look at his pre-existence. We all have a birth date. Now, whether you know it or not, whether it's accurate, what is shown on your documents, because I know some of you who have been refugees and whatever, you sort of just made up your, you know, 1st of January type of thing. That'll do. Um, Because you just couldn't find, there was no paperwork, right? But, you know, in in that sense, we all, we were all born one, one day. After nine months, we took our first breath. This is recorded on our license and birth certificate and informs, forms part of our identity. If Jesus had a passport, it would say he was Jewish, he was born in Bethlehem, at some time during the year zero. But this is not the date of his coming into existence. This is what Jesus said of himself in John 3.13. No one has ever gone to heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. As God, he was already there before time began. He once told his critics, he said, as Abraham, before Abraham was, before Abraham was born, I am. That's a big word, I am statement in the Bible, right? He who lives in eternity past, eternity present and eternity future took on human flesh. Then at Calvary, he died, he was buried in a tomb, and after three days, he rose triumphantly from the grave. He then ascended to heaven before many witnesses. Many saw him, some 500. And this is why he said to his disciples in in John 6, 62, "Then, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The fact that he was returning to where he was before points to his pre-existence. Where was he before? He was at the realm of eternity in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And these are the events that we celebrate in the Christian calendar in Christmas and Easter. Then we come to his suffering. He used also the Son of Man to refer to his suffering. Well, in these verses in in Daniel chapter 7, there is no specific mention about the suffering of the Son of Man. There is an indication in Daniel chapter 9 verse 26 where it says, The anointed one, which is Jesus, will be cut off and will have nothing. That's about as close as you get in Daniel about the sufferings of Jesus. But Jesus knew his role and this is, what he, this is why he came. This is the role that he came to fulfill. Everyone, including his disciples, were expecting, however, a conquering political 
Messiah to come and rescue them and deliver them from the occupying Romans who were giving them a hard time. They wanted a hero. They didn't want a saviour. Especially one who was going to be tortured and eventually killed on a cross. So at one time he actually asked his disciples, he asked them, who do you say, in an intimate moment, he, he asked, who do you say that I am? He says, this is what the others are saying, but what about you? What are you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them. Right, That was the trigger to begin teaching them about the Son of Man that must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And in verse 32 it says he spoke plainly about this. He wasn't hiding it, it was plain. And then Peter, he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He took him aside and actually Peter, imagine this, trying to, he was rebuking Jesus. You can imagine what he was saying. What, are you crazy? Look at all the people who are following you. Look at all the popularity. Look at all the miracles you're doing. You're just going to die? And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. So the disciples didn't quite know what to make of this association of Son of Man alongside Messiah with notions of rejection and suffering and defeat. And one can understand it, especially if you, are, you have built up all your life all these false expectations. What good is a royal, reigning, suffering servant? Who wants that? And, and you know, false expectations are usually built upon false teaching based on, and this is what many churches do, they go and select certain parts of the Bible, ignore the rest, selective material. And that's how you get your different heresies and false teachings. So I wanted true teaching and balance their preaching. All they had to do was read Isaiah 53. It's all there. It's not hidden. In the same way that Jesus asked his disciples, I want to ask you guys this morning, I say, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that I am? If Jesus was asking us, Have you already settled in your mind who Jesus is? The apologist uh, Josh McDowell, who wrote more than 120 books, he he put it simply in this way. He he had three options as an answer to that. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. So we need to carefully think. Don't just dismiss the question, who, you do, who do you say that I am? Is either a liar, 
a lunatic, demented, or he is the Lord. Because your answer has eternal consequences. Right? How you respond to that? It's a very important question. He also used the Son of Man to point to his authority. The authority of the Son of Man is, is clearly stated when, in, in verse 14 where he said he was given authority. This is Daniel 7.14. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. So the Son of Man participates in this glorious picture there that Daniel saw, this glorious vision of the Son of Man as the Ancient of Days executes judgment. The Son of Man is there. There's a, there's a beautiful story in the Gospel of Matthew where a paralytic man, they, they obviously heard that Jesus is preaching, Jesus is in town, and there's no way for a paralyzed person to get to Jesus because he's, he's paralyzed. Couldn't call a taxi or anything. So what? his friends get together, they put him on a mat and they take him to Jesus. When Jesus saw this, he, what does he do? He pronounces that his sins have been forgiven. And, and Jesus was teaching, this is the context, Jesus was teaching, there were scribes, there were Pharisees, and they were freaking out. They were, they were sort of saying, what? This guy, how, who can forgive sins except God? Who does he think he is? And Jesus explains it this way. He says that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. That's that's another whole message right there, right? Because if this paralytic person was on welfare, whatever, suddenly he'd have to start working. It's much easier just to be on the dole, right? And do nothing. Suddenly he has to get up, pick up his match, get out of here, go and get a job. No, no, I'd rather remain paralysed, thank you. No. (laughs) And I think today he's telling us the same thing. That whatever sins, whatever past, whatever our past, whatever we've done in our lives, Jesus has the power to forgive as long as we repent and ask for forgiveness. We know that Jesus was hounded by the teachers of the law and the Jewish leaders and, uh, and he actually pushes the point. He actually, as the time of his death was, was getting closer, his message was getting bolder. And he actually uses the imagery from Daniel in John chapter 5 verses 25 to 27 in the context of his authority when they question who gave you all this authority and this is what he tells them he says very truly I tell you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life 
and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Again, he says, very truly I tell you, when you see, when in the Bible you see the words very truly or verily, verily, it means this is really important what I'm about to tell you. That's what it means. That a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, as that word, Son of God, and, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Son of God, Son of Man. His authority. He also used it with regards to his works of salvation. Jesus told, also told a teacher called Nicodemus, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The only way to be saved, the only way to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. That's a controversial statement right there. But it's a very exclusive statement because that's what we read in the the scriptures. Man, of course, has a tendency to look for loopholes. Especially those who are trying to dodge their taxes, you look for loopholes, right? There has to be another way to get to heaven. It can't be just Jesus, surely. Who do you think you are? Well, no, it's who do you think Jesus is? Well, you, I'm, I'm telling you, it's in the scriptures. There has to be another way, if at all possible. But even if there was, I'm telling you, that even if there was another hundred ways, we'd be looking for 101. That is human nature. But thanks be to God that there is at least one way. And you don't have to go around sort of saying, maybe, I don't know, maybe if my good works are more than my bad works, if I've been better than I've been bad, then one day in the scales things will tip my way. No, that's not the way it works. You believe in Jesus, Son of God, your sins are forgiven through faith, repentance. One day every knee will bow before him, as it says in verse 14, all nations and peoples of every language, they worshipped him. All nations. The Apostle Paul also knew his Old Testament when he wrote, that was our first reading this morning, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth that un- and under the earth that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of us one day will find ourselves in that setting. Maybe some of us sooner rather than later. 
question is, will you bow willingly to the one who died to purchase your salvation or will you do so reluctantly, begrudgingly, realising that by this stage it's too late? There is only one thing left, which is condemnation. But I'm here to tell you that it doesn't have to be that way. I don't know how long we have, but the fact that we're still here means that we still have a choice. A choice to believe in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul said, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's quite clear. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And lastly, his return. His return. He used the, the word, the expression, the Son of Man, with regards to his second coming. Although for now he has achieved his rule, he has ascended to heaven and established his kingdom, it obviously remains quite evident that his is a king, as a kingship is not yet fully realised. His rule is still opposed. It is still contested. The world, its kings, its prime ministers, the nations are still rebelling against God. His kingdom, yes, is now, but not yet. The Bible tells us that increasingly things are going to happen and develop just as God told us it would. For this reason, Jesus quotes the book of Daniel and enlarges upon these things by giving us the same picture as Daniel concerning his return. This is what he says. He says, when the Son of Man, this is what he's told, told him in Matthew chapter 25 in the Gospels, when the Son of Man, there's that word again, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And then his throne will be established and all the nations shall gather before him. All the nations, all the languages. There is no black or white or Asian or Caucasian or rich or poor. And everybody will have to speak in Spanish. I'm serious, guys. Don't worry. I'm kidding. So, for for now, God's intent is to allow sinful humanity to, to run its cause. Read Romans 1. But eventually, all that is hidden underneath, the evil pretensions of the human heart, will be brought out to the light and revealed and when history we still got a way to go when reaches reaches its lowest point its lowest ebb when the sin of man reaches its most vulgar and evil forms when men don't know what is man and what is woman we're getting close 
It is then that God will intervene. So as we look at a situation of our world, when all the big nations and the empires, just like the Babylonians, the Romans, the Russians, the Chinese, the Americans, they're all armed to the teeth, staring defiantly at each other. What a mess, right? When they tell you that they're working for peace, behind the background they're arming themselves even more. Because man cannot work out these problems on his own. There is no, there's simply no way it can be done. It's only as man submits to God, he understands him, seeks him truly from his heart, that his problems are slowly worked out. If persecution comes, and it is real now for many Christians around the world, and if persecution eventually comes to Australia, it's nothing that has happened, hasn't happened before. 2,000 years ago, the early Christians in Rome, life for them was very difficult. They lived under adverse, very, very difficult conditions. And, and the, what they did is, the morale of these Christians who were being persecuted and tortured and fed to the lions and lit up like a Christmas tree, they looked forward to the coming of the Lord, to the second coming of the Lord, even then. So instead of greeting one another with the words shalom, which means peace, you know that greeting, right? Instead of greeting one another with the word shalom, they, they used the word maranatha. It only occurs once in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. And maranatha is an Aramaic word that means the Lord is coming, or come, O Lord. That's what it means. So instead of your suffering believers and, and the difficulty that they faced, instead of saying sh- shalom, peace, when it was very difficult to understand the, the peace at the time, they would greet each other with the Lord is coming. Stay strong, stay with it, come on. We got this, or God's got this. He's coming. So to those who are discouraged, worried, filled with anxiety over the problems of our world, there is hope. God is sovereign. God's purpose, his purposes will be worked out. To all of us, I say, Maranatha. Our Lord is coming. Amen.